Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Hello again, Intelligentsia. Welcome to another episode of the Jeffers Brief. I'm John Jeffers, here to talk to the preppers today. And to, to, you know what, and I guess also to the Patriots. Let's talk a little bit about communications. No, we're going to talk a lot about it. And what I want to talk about is you're going to have to get a scanner. And it's going to be able to to reach to some upper high frequencies and some low frequencies. And we're going to talk about that. Now, I don't know which one is the best. I don't know which one is right for you. Only you can make that determination. I can't. So, with that said, you're going to have, what we're going to be talking about is you're not going to be able to talk to the people that we're going to be talking about. It would behoove one to be able to listen in and monitor it. So let me get started. We're going to get set up here. So before we get into all the frequencies and stuff, we're going to have to learn a little a few definitions so you know who you hear all right now I know it's, it sounds boring but it's really not now let's do a little chat shall we um, let's talk about first to set setting everything in, uh, up let's talk about the protocol for a U.S. nuclear strike. Now, this was written on February 28th, 2018, so it's not that long ago, and I don't think much of it has changed. And what it is, is from the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. In their mind, they're discussing whether or not launch on warning is still a viable and acceptable protocol. So... Let's talk about this. Here's the protocol for a U.S. nuclear strike, my friends. Now, the current U.S. protocol for deciding whether to launch a nuclear strike developed in the early 1960s with the advent of the ICBMs. It has two main functions and virtues. First, it concentrates the power and authority over the use of nuclear weapons in the presidency at the highest level of the executive branch of the U.S. government, thus keeping it out of the hands of the military and others. Second, it enables the president to respond rapidly and decisively to a nuclear attack by an enemy whose missiles may fly from one side of the planet to the other in 30 minutes or, or whose missiles launched from submarines in the oceans may fly to targets in the United States in 15 minutes or less. So it's critical to have a protocol that allows the president to consider the use of nuclear weapons and, if necessary, to order their use and to have the process of implementation begin in a very, very short period of time. And guys, it ain't like the movies. I'm going to tell you that now. So the protocol's virtues also produces its disadvantages. 
By virtue of the speed and concentration of authority in this protocol, the president has an opportunity to effectively railroad the nuclear commanders and forces into executing even a very large nuclear strike first, preemptively or preventively. That could lead to a misguided decision based on impulsive psychology or other factors that lead to a very bad call, because if that call ever goes out, it's going to be a bad day for everyone. The other downsides of this protocol, which we used to talk about a lot more than we do today, is that the protocol itself, rooted as it is in speed and concentrated authority, can railroad the president into authorizing in a hasty way the, new, the, the use of nuclear weapons based on indications, possibly false of an attack underway, a strategy known as launch on warning. In other words, we might believe we are retaliating when in fact we're launching first. So during the Cold War, to my knowledge, a false alarm never led to notification of the president at the beginning of the protocol that I'm about to describe. The false alarms were caught before that happened. Ironically, today, with the proliferation of ballistic missiles over the last decade, and there's been a huge surge of ballistic missile proliferation, and they're testing. You find that recent missile launches from China, from Iran, from North Korea, have led on multiple occasions to sufficient ambiguity that the presidents have actually been notified about the ongoing event. Case in point, who remembers a few years ago when some uh, middle-level bureaucrat typed out ballistic missile warning in Hawaii on Honolulu? Yeah, remember that one? Yeah, okay. And in fact, there was nothing coming. Now, here are the key features of the current protocol. It begins with an early warning function, the effort to detect a possible attack against North America and to notify the president and others to begin a process of deliberation. Every single day, the early warning staffs out in Colorado and Omaha pick up events that require a second look to determine whether we're under attack. Events they might review include a Japanese satellite launch into space, a North Korean missile test, a U.S. missile test out of California, a wildfire in the southwest U.S. Most of these are usually dismissed quickly. Once or twice a month, something happens that requires a really close second look. And once in a blue moon, something happens and all hell breaks loose, and in the case of a false alarm concerning a missile launch. If these staffs receive any indication we may be under attack, they have three minutes, 180 seconds, from the time the first sensor data arrives until they have to provide a preliminary assessment as to whether North America is under attack. If the assessment is of medium or high confidence that there is a threat, they initiate a process that will bring the president and his top advisors into emergency conference no matter what time, day or night. Now, hold on. Remember that phrase. No matter what time of day or night. We're going to come back to that. That's important. So imagine, if you will, that the president has decided to initiate a conference with his top advisors to consider the first use of nuclear weapons. The United States does not have a no first use policy. Furthermore, under the current review of our nuclear policy, undertaken primarily by the Pentagon, there is an emergent thesis 
that we should move further away from no first use and consider use of nuclear weapons in a wider variety of contingencies. We are on the verge of modifying our assurance to non-nuclear weapons countries that we would not use nuclear weapons against them, in contradiction to the position adopted by the Obama administration. The emergency meeting of the president's top advisors will typically include statutory members of the National Security Council, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who participates at the discretion and invitation of the Secretary of Defense, and a number of key military command centers and personnel, the most important of whom is the Commander of Strategic Forces, based in Omaha, Nebraska, who commands all our strategic nuclear weapons. Now, time and circumstances permitting, the commander will brief the president on his nuclear options and their consequences. It will not be a long briefing. It's going to have to boil this down into a very, very brief sound bites for the president. Here are your options. Here are the consequences. The commander will then ask the president a couple questions, such as whether he wants to withhold attacks on a particular location, such as a populous city. Or maybe he might say, do you wish to target the leadership? The president could say, fuck it, kill them all, kill all those fuckers. He could, all right, I'm just making that part up. That briefing, if we are under attack, will be as short as 30 seconds. Of course, if the president is considering the first use of nuclear weapons, the timeline is not nearly as short, and that conversation can last quite a long period. If we are under attack, the president's going to have to consider his options in about six minutes. Six minutes. Given how this protocol tends to work, if we're not under attack, he can deliberate longer. Then he makes a decision. What options am I going to pursue? Am I going to decide to attack North Korea, for example, with the current pre-programmed attack plan? I estimate we would have 80 nuclear aim points in North Korea. Let's say the president chooses an option. It will be conveyed instantly to the war room at the Pentagon, which probably initiated the presidential conference in the first place. The people in the Pentagon war room are listening in on the conversation and are beginning as they hear the president moving toward a decision to use nuclear weapons to prepare a launch order. No that the Secretary of Defense does not confirm the President's decision, nor does he or she have the right to veto it, nor does anyone else have the authority to override the decision. This is what Elaine Scarry has identified as, in effect, the thermonuclear monarchy, which gives the U.S. President almost carte blanche command over the nuclear forces. When the President conveys his decision to the war room, they ask him to authenticate his identity using a special code. It's referred to colloquially as the biscuit. Hmm. Otherwise known more officially as the gold code. Gold code. Not the go code, the gold code. If that code matches, the war room at the Pentagon or at an alternate will format a launch order that will be transmitted down the chain of command to the executing commanders of the submarines, land-based missiles, and bombers. That launch order is roughly half the length of a tweet. So let's think about this. If a tweet on Twitter is maximum 140 characters 
and it says roughly half the length we're talking 70 characters now it will contain all the information necessary for the crews down the chain of command to launch their forces the time to fire the chosen war plan the unlock code that the crews need to physically unlock their weapons prior to the launch and special authentication codes that the crews check with the codes in their safes to satisfy themselves that these orders came from the president those codes are not not in the possession of the president but that of the military now that takes two minutes 10 seconds to authenticate then a minute or two to format and transmit the order and in two or more minutes from the receipt of that order down the chain of command missiles could be leaving their silos and it takes only about one minute for a Minuteman crew in the plain states of the Midwest to carry out their launch checklist. Well, according to the author, he says, this was my job in the 1970s, and at that time, it took me one minute. We delayed a little bit for classified reasons, but that's how long it took, and that's how long it takes today. Moving on. Oh, we got a, a thunderstorm rolling outside my window here. Okay. So... After the crew enter the war plan, it goes out to all the missiles, which are pre-programmed with what wartime targets to strike. In peacetime, they are aimed at the ocean, but changing their targets to Moscow or any other targets is as easy as changing the channel on your TV set. Today, within a minute or two, there can be up to 400 high-yield strategic weapons launched out of their silos to their targets, wherever those targets may be. Submarines take about 10 minutes longer because it takes them longer to target their missiles, position the submarine, and get to the proper depth. But even the submarines on alert in the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans would, within 15 minutes, be launching missiles out of their tubes, then firing them one at a time every 15 seconds. Lastly, the bombers would take 8 to 10 hours to reach their launch points if they are already on alert. They are not normally, today, in peacetime, on alert. They don't even have the bombs on board. So in a crisis, they would have to be placed on full alert with bombs and cruise missiles loaded before they were usable. To sum up, the president wakes up, gives an order through a system so streamlined that there's almost no gatekeeping, and within five minutes, 400 bombs leave on missiles launched out of the Midwest. About 10 minutes later, another 400 leaves on missiles launched out on submarines. That's 800 nuclear weapons, roughly the equivalent of, in round numbers, 15,000 Hiroshima bombs. Now, reform of current U.S. launch protocol is long overdue, laying on the new safeguard that strengthened the checks and balances on presidential launch authority is necessary to reduce the risk of nuclear first use. Now, safeguards include the Marky Lou bill, which would prohibit the president from employing nuclear weapons first unless Congress has declared war and provided special authorization for their use. Okay, leave it to the Democrats to come up with that brilliant operational plan. I know, they're morons. The Betts-Waxman solution, which would add the Secretary of Defense and, get this guys, Attorney General to the chain of command to certify that a presidential launch order is authentic, and legal. Yeah, that's great. That's what we need. We need another fucking lawyer in D.C. trying to figure out if it's legal to launch. I'll tell you what. Why don't you go stand outside and wait for that missile to hit D.C.? You can make your decision after that, all right? Idiots.
Only only a lawyer would think of something like that. Okay. And the adoption of a no first use policy, which would draw a red line that if crossed makes the president accountable and even impeachable. Regarding a second strike, the US, United States should eliminate launch on warning and move toward a true retaliatory posture, requiring protection of the president and his successors and provide a large increase in warning and decision time. Well, first of all, Congress shouldn't have anything to do with launching nuclear weapons. Those fuckers will be there until they're incinerated. And they still, after incineration, still couldn't get it right. Just my opinion, my friends, actually. Okay, now how many, now let me, I said we were going to go back to this um, idea that the president and his top advisors would be called into an emergency conference no matter what time of day or night. Let us put forth this question to you. How many of you have the confidence that Joe Biden is woken up at 2.30 in the morning and said, yeah, we're under attack? Do you have any confidence at all that he can collect his mental faculties long enough, one, to comprehend what's going on, Two, figure out what to do. And three, initiate a retaliation according to a PSYOP. I don't. He can barely figure out what to say in front of the press now. And now we're going to put the nuclear gun to his head? Are you kidding me? I got to tell you guys, and I hate to say this, but if I was the Russian or the Chinese or the North Koreans, and I wanted to get to the United States, guess what? This is the president to do it in because he's not going to have a fucking clue. And he's the only one that could actually launch. All right. All right, my friends. Let's think of a scenario here. Um... We already, already decided that one. Let's assume this, my friends. We know what a failure Biden has been. Fifty years in federal government service. He's been an ab abject failure. The entire time. He's been wrong on every issue. So let's assume this, my friends. Let's assume that Russia or China launch a nuclear strike. It's a limited nuclear strike. Somewhere in the Kremlin, somewhere in Beijing, somebody came up with the idea, you know what, a limited nuclear strike on the United States could, could get us what we want. And this limited nuclear strike would be on particular military bases. My guess specifically would be on communications. So let's call it NORAD, Omaha, you know, the big, the big ones. DC. So, well, maybe not DC because it wouldn't work out for this. But let's assume they hit the, uh, the, the, the major choke point communication. All right. 
after the first strike as Biden is trying to figure out his ass from the hole in the ground, the Chinese or the Russians get on the line and they say, we have held our nuclear strikes only to a few military bases. If you stand down now, we won't strike your cities and the rest of your arsenal. Do you have any confidence at all that Joe Biden can make that decision? And this is where we come in, my friends. You got to have a receiver, a scanner, a radio capable of certain frequencies. They're out there. I don't know how expensive they are, but they're out there and you should buy them. I'm going to tell you why. First things first, where are we? Let's talk about emergency radio frequencies preppers must know. My friends, if you're not following me on Codius, on USA.life or mumblet.com, or I hate using MeWe because they're not a true free speech platform. Get out your pencil and papers now because I'm going to give you a bunch of frequencies as preppers. You got to know this stuff. Because the ability to communicate post-disaster is absolutely essential if you want to make the most informed and safest decisions that you can. Emergency communications not only help you to know when, you know, impending weather, but find resources and avoid dangerous areas. But they also help you know where your loved ones are or even allow you to call for help should you find yourself in a dangerous predicament. You don't need a trick doc communication system, though that, you know, that is nice to have, to meet your communication prepper needs. You can start with a few simple products, some know-how and build from there. Now, it could be confusing to know just where to turn the dial during disaster if you're new to emergency communications. However, you may have a radio, but knowing how to use it to its fullest potential is quite another matter. So in order to help with this process below, we are going to emergency radio frequencies that, that, that we think are correct. First things first, CB radio. You should have one in your vehicles. You should have one in your radio shack somewhere. You don't need a license to receive or transmit. That's nice. But don't forget, they're not going that far. But you can get a classic CB radio for about 100 bucks. Sometimes they're on sale for even less. CBs operate off 40 distinct channels, and pretty much every CB radio out there will have access to all 40 of these channels. Uh, keep in mind that Channel 9 is distinctly reserved for the emergency react channel, as far as unless the only channel that is distinctly reserved. Nah. Um, keep in mind anything you see on the CAB radio frequencies can't be heard by anybody else within range. So it's not a source of private conversation. <coughs> now, RAYAC is the Radio Emergency Association Communications Teams. These are volunteers throughout the country who monitor the channel to assist in emergency situations. They often work at public events, disasters, and other emergency situations to provide valuable communication services. So on channel three, get your pencil and papers out. I gave you a warning. Do it. I'll count to ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Channel three, 
which is 26.985 megahertz. 26.985 megahertz. That's the Prepper CB network. Channel 4. That's 27.005. Again, 27.005. That's the American Preppers Network. Channel 9. 27.065. 27.065. Universal CB Emergency React Channel. Channel 13. 27.115 megahertz. These are all megahertz frequencies. 27.115 is typically used within campgrounds in the marine areas. Channel 15, 27.135. That's used by California truckers. Channel 17, 27.165. 27.165. Used by California truckers headed east or west. Channel 19, 27.185. 27.185 megahertz, main trucker channel. Channel 36, channel 36, 27.365 megahertz. 27.365 megahertz is the survivalist network. And channel 37, 27.375, 27.375 megahertz is Prepper 37. Now on a free banding CB radio, free banding is the act of utilizing the frequencies in between the different CB channels. Oftentimes, you may need a CB radio with free band operation in order to even tune into these channels. Now, free banding offers improved privacy over the typical 40 channels simply because less people use it. But it by no means will give you a private conversation. So, on these frequencies, 27.3680. 27.3680 is the proper network. The next frequency. 27.3780. 27.3780, Prepper Network. 27.4250. 27.4250 is the Prepper Network. Now, if you have a ham radio, I'm going to give you some frequencies. You do not need a license to buy a ham radio or to listen in on the ham radio. All right. So, here's some ham radio frequencies. And like I said, if you follow me on Mumblet, MeWe, USA.life, Codius, I'm going to be putting those on there. So I'll be posting these. So, getting to it. On ham radio, 34.90. 34.90 is the nationwide National Guard frequency during emergencies. 39.46 is interdepartment emergency communications by police. I don't know about that. 47.42 is a nationwide Red Cross channel during humanitarian aid missions. 121.50, international frequency for aeronautical emergencies. 138.225, disaster relief channel used by FEMA. 154.265, used by firemen during emergencies. 
as is 154.28 and 154.295 155.160 used by various agencies during search and rescue operations 155.475 is emergency communications for police if they're still using that a lot of them have gone to digital trunking so that won't work but it's there 156.75 international maritime weather alerts 156.80 international maritime distress channel all ships at sea are required to monitor this channel that's 156.80 163.4875 again 163.4875 is a National Guard emergency communications frequency 163.5125 163.5125 military national disaster preparedness frequency 168.55 emergency and disaster frequency used by civilian agencies of the federal government and that's provided that those bureaucrats can get their head out of their ass long enough to figure out how to operate the radio. 243.00 is military aviation emergencies. 311.00, U.S. Air Force Flight Channel. 317.70, U.S. Coast Guard Aviation Frequency. So is 317.80. 319.40 is a U.S. Air Force frequency. And we're going to be talking more about this. 340.20, uh, U.S. Navy aviator frequency. 409.625, Department of State national communications frequency. And 462.675, 462.675, emergency communications and traveler assistance in the General Mobile Radio Service, GMRS. Okay, my friends, uh, I've got a lot of other ones, but we don't have time for that. I just want to give you a heads up on this one. Now, where are we? Some definitions. Now, you're going to be getting some of these frequencies uh, you're going to be able to listen to. But you need to know who in the hell you're listening to. Now, some of the call signs you may hear on the, these frequencies, my friends, Write it down. 8992.0 to 11175.0 kilohertz, KHZ. That's a primary frequency, 24 hours. The next frequency, 13200.0. To 15016.0 kilohertz. That's backup frequencies for the daytime. The next set of frequencies 4724.0 to 6739.0 kilohertz is backup frequencies nighttime. Now, some of the call signs you're going to hear, if you hear the call signs brick wall, that's the Osan Air Mobility Control Center. 
Denali. That's Elmendorf Air Mobility Command Center. Hilda Global. That's Tanker Airlift Control Center at Scott Air Force Base. Mainsail. These are definitions, so you know who you're listening to. Authorized users may contact and request service from the global high-frequency system stations by using the general net air-to-ground call sign mainsail. Any global station hearing the call mainsail will respond and provide the requested service. Then there's S4JG. That's a universal Navy call sign assigned to patrol squadrons, VP, for use in radio checks. Instead of using the briefed tactical call sign, the navigation communications operator on a P-3C Orion aircraft would use S4JG on voice and also teletype to get a communications check with a tactical support center. A high-frequency global communication system station or anti-submarine warfare operations center. In theory, by using S4JG, the tactical call sign is less likely to be compromised. Next is Skybird, a collective call sign for all STRATCOM command posts, launch control centers, global high-frequency stations, air traffic control towers on Air Combat Command, Air Mobility Command, host tenant bases, single sideband, that's SSB, high-frequency radio stations, and air defense sites in Canada. If you hear Skybird, that's what it is. Sky King, that's the collective call sign for all single integrated operational plan, that's PSYOP, committed aircraft and missile crews. Its meaning is all PSYOP committed aircraft and missile crews copy the following message. Then there's Skymaster, that's the collective call sign to all U.S. STRATCOM airborne command posts. Then you have Tracker, that's U.S. Air Force Europe Tanker Riki Airlift Control Center. Do you understand what we're talking about now? That's right. So, uh, let's see what else we have here. There's also something called the Zulu Net. You probably may, may have heard of it, may not have. Now, an emergency action message are commonly based on the high-frequency GCS primary frequencies plus on, write this down, on kilohertz frequency 11244.0. All right. Now, you're not going to be able to talk to these guys. You won't. And I'll tell you why, my friends. Because they have such heavily encrypted messaging that's only used once and then it's thrown out and never used again. And it changes frequently. You will never be able to talk to these guys. Don't try. But you can listen. So, sometimes, uh, there's also the Foxtrot Skyking messages are also common. At least they used to be. We don't know if they still are or not. It's hard to tell. You should generally hear more than two EAM, emergency action messages, over any 24-hour period. Of interest, the preface to the Foxtrot broadcast that would 
named the echoing ground stations have not been heard since maybe sometime in April 2003, around the end of major combat in Iraq. And we've heard no one request to Diego, Gar Diego Garcia or anyone else around that time. Just an occasional Foxtrot broadcast from Andrews or wherever. So, the busiest frequencies are 8992.0 kilohertz, also known as 8-niner, and 11175.0 kilohertz, also known as triple I. I've started correction, triple one, which most stations guard around the clock. Now, you may pick up a data signal on 9025.0 kilohertz, which is, an, which is ALE, which is a computerized system that simplifies high-frequency operation. My friends, don't, we're not going to go into that. Can't even get it, so we're not going to talk about it. So, what, you, what we're looking at is this. You're wondering, John, what would an EAM uh, message sound like? It's going to sound something like this. Listen carefully. Recorded in 2019. The next one is a, is a recording that was made in 2012. It's on a high frequency global communication system. The frequencies, write these down so you know. 4724.00, these are all going to be kilohertz. 6739.00, 8992.00. 1, 1, 1, 
and 6712.00, that's Cruton. That's thought to be out of the UK. All right, this is the recording from 2012. So you get an idea of what an EAM sounds like, or the format. Now, the high-frequency GCS is used by the U.S. Air Force to send instructions for their operations through messages, and most commonly send emergency action messages. Now, the high-frequency global communication system is not exclusive to the U.S. Air Force and is used by other countries, too, but not as often. They also send higher-priority messages known as Sky King messages, which will even uh, be read over top and interrupt an EAM to be read. Both of these messages are time-sensitive and are read live in NATO phonetic letters. All right, what do we got here? Um, if you're listening in, it, won't, it shouldn't take you long to hear an EAM. They begin with a six-letter header. This preamble could have a different use, but NPS states for Minuteman missile launches, the preamble told the crews which edition and page number of a non-sealed authenticator to use. Once at the right page, the crew would know what message checklist to use. The receiving crew has access to an emergency action checklist binder where the message and instructions are copied to. Then the message continues afterward and is repeated. A typical EAM message is 30 characters long but can be different. There, are, there have been uh, EAMs over 200 characters long before. The message usually ends with main sale out, but can change based off where it is being sent from, for example, off of it. Main sale is a collective call sign for all ground stations in the network. From 2013 to April of 2015, main sale out was a much more commonly used ending 
than the originating base. Uh, since then, you'll mostly hear a call sign being used for sender and recipient. Another unique call sign is SkyMaster. That's the collective call sign for all U.S. STRATCOM Airborne Command units. Sometimes messages are intended for specific recipients and tactical side call signs are read at the end of a message. For example, Fort Waiter or Fort Trinity have been used as tactical call signs before. These call signs are changed very often and can change in less than an hour or possibly even shorter. So, a force direction message, an FDM, is another type of message sent through the global communication system. However, there is no way to tell if a force direction message is being sent or it's just another EAM. So, SkyKeen messages, also known as Foxtrot broadcast, are SkyKeen messages. High priority messages are, and are sent in a different format from EAMs. SkyKeen messages will sometimes even interrupt an ongoing EAM since it's the highest priority. Again, SkyKeen is the collective call sign for sending messages to all single integrated operation plan, aircraft and missile ops, which are also responsible for deploying strategic bombers, recon aircraft, and various support aircraft. Now, a SkyKeen message begins with the reader speaking, SkyKeen, SkyKeen, do not answer, followed by a code word, then two numbers for the time of the hour and ends with a two-letter authentication string. The message is then repeated. SkyKeen messages have the same ending as a regular EAM and can also change depending on where it's sent from. Until 2016, SkyKeen began with a three-letter trigraph instead of a code word. So in 2015 through 2016, the, 20, the uh, trigraph was still used, but sometimes a code word was used instead. Here is an example of a SkyKeen message. Now the operator is telling the receiver to disregard his last message. Stand by and listen. The second example of a Sky King message. Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. Disregard my six hotel seven. Transmitted at one one. Time one four. Authentication Zulu Yankee. I say again. Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. Disregard my six hotel seven. Transmitted at one one. There you go. Now Skybird is a collective call sign for all STRATCOM command posts, launch control centers, global high frequency stations, air traffic control towers on air combat command, air mobility command, host tenant bases, single sideband high frequency radio stations, and air defense sites in Canada. Skybird is rarely ever heard on the high-frequency GCS comms. When a SkyKeen message is sent out, the receiving planes transmit to Skybird, which is what sends the SkyKeen message and acknowledges. Skybird likely has many other uses and has also changed over time. So, 
there you have it. Uh, what else we have? Uh, two sites on the high frequency global command uh, system have been closed. That's Thule Air Force Base in Greenland and Kaflavik Global, Kaflavik Naval Air Station in Iceland. But they have been replaced with an automatic link establishment or an AL call sign. We're not going into that. You're just not going to go into it. All right, now you got an idea. Now, for some of you people, might be a little more driven from Milcom, uh, from Transmission1.net. Here's the frequencies for the Russian Navy, Russian High Command Naval Radio in Moscow headquarters and many other remote sites. The frequency is 18.100. Remember, these are all kilohertz. Uh, UK RAF uh, at the MKL Northwood Secure Broadcast, NATO 75 is 82.800. Russian Military, 2105.5. 2105.5 uh, let's see, another for the Russian military, 2502.5, 2502.5. Polish military is 2597.5, 2597.5. What else we got here? All kinds of stuff. The Israeli Navy, if you're interested, is 4520.0. But there's a host of other fun stuff. Those of you listening in Florida, there's a lot of you listening to this show in Florida. Tune in to 5389.0. 5389.0. That's the Cuban military. I know. Uh, the Russian Air Defense Network, 5772.0. 5772.0. All kinds of stuff. The Russian Army uses 6881.0, 6881.0. But I'll tell you what, my friends. You start following because I'm going to start posting these. Oh, what else do we have? All kinds of fun stuff. Now, for you people out there, these are people out here on Twatter that actually believe that U.S. Strategic Command sent out a launch order via Twitter. Yeah, that's right. You heard me. How freaking stupid are these people? Well, they're pretty damn dumb. And it got the twi the twatter sphere into panic mode after it tweeted out an assortment of characters which some feared could be the nation's nuclear codes. Yes, these people actually vote. They actually propagate and make more dumbasses just like themselves. It is true. It's so it got so bad that Stratcom had to send out a nose to disregard the now deleted post. It appeared for 30 minutes and then transpired before the post was removed and racked up thousands of tweets. For example, let's see well what did, what did this dumbass say? Ah, yes, here we go. We have Bricksuit, one of those Stratcom was tweeting out launch codes. Yeah, because, you know, that's what they do. 
And then uh, we got Jane Manchun Wan. She says, time to say goodbye to everyone. I'll miss my friends and family. And then we got DF1. Should I stop making plans to build my patio and just watch the sunset for the last time or what? Yeah, you should do that, you dumbass. You should just do that. Stratcom shouldn't even apologize. They actually apologize for any confusion. They shouldn't even bother to even respond to these idiots. Oh, good Lord. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm starting to wonder if there comes a point in time where our enemies say, these people are too stupid to conquer. Just sit back and watch. They'll, they'll screw themselves. All right. Like I said, I know it's about longer than we should, but I wanted to get this out there because it's important for preppers to have the access to these radio codes, these frequencies. So that way you can listen in. If you can listen in, you don't necessarily have to talk. Just listening. That's why during the Cold War, and we still do to this day, especially at Fort Meade, we have listening posts all over the planet. And all they do is listen. Listen and record. That's it. So that's why it's important for you. All right, I want to get off. I want to get this out to you. This is important. People in Europe, I see you. You guys are really coming along. You guys are really putting the word out. We're getting known in Europe. And in South America, Brazil, I see you. Colombia, I've seen yours. Thank you. Uh, so, my friends, until next time, uh, John Jeffers, Jeffers Brief, thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon.